What a week. What a week. We've both been very busy. Allie's back at school. I'm running around like a crazy person. But in the best <laughs> way. The weather's uh, decent. Flowers are a popping up everywhere. I have literal daffodils in my front yard that I didn't know existed. Uh, that's the best part about moving into a new I house. I love it. Now, I knew mine existed because I planted them <laughs> in the fall. I was thinking okay. ahead. But, um, yeah, I'm ready for them to bloom. They haven't bloomed yet. They're like okay. late blooming daffodils. Because I like blooming. them to bloom the same time as the tulips. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because I remember when I used to live um, down on Charles Street. You know, we lived across the street from the park. We had this big median in front. And it was full of crocuses, purple, beautiful crocuses every spring. But my brother, Zach, he would like flip out and be like, it's too early. It's global warming. And he'd be like, this is terrible. I'm like, but they're so pretty. And he goes, it's March. And like, Zach, March has flowers. flowers too. Yeah. March has flowers too. April showers don't only bring May flowers. No. February <laughs> snowstorms also bring, bring crocuses. <laughs> But we've had so much fun this week. So we've had so many nice people talk to us. Yes. Um, Celia Ivy is a new patron. We're Welcome. so happy to have you. Welcome to the club. Oh, my gosh. And then Vero reached out to us with just mm-hmm. the sweetest message. And then we got a message from Julie Bates Flint and Moltar24. And they're just, like, so nice. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. We love hearing from people. And we love when you talk to us. It just... Makes us feel like um, people are listening to this endless void we speak into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's the thing. Uh, I'm sure this episode as a season finale. Oh, that's right. It's the season finale. Season finale <laughs> probably has a lot of requesters. In fact, I know specifically that um, people have requested these two women. So what I'm going to do is look it up later Ooh, and go back and okay. cut it into the beginning before the opening song. I love it because, I mean, we're doing two really famous women this week. And we've gotten <laughs> multiple requests for each of these women. Yeah. So I just want to double check before I say everybody's name who's involved. Yes. Hi, everybody. I am in my backyard editing, so this sounds way, way different, but it's too nice to go inside. So, as it turns out, Emily Hill and Artemis both requested Eartha Kitt. And then I put on the list, and some others, because sometimes people request, and I'm like, well, I know that's on the list, so I'm not going to go back and add it. So, sorry about that, but I've gotten lots of requests for her. And then, actually, I have zero requests for Madeline Albright. Yes. But we're not here to talk about my editing skills. No. Which are (laughs) average at best, mostly subpar. (laughs) We're here to talk about famous women from history. Yeah. Because it's history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. (laughs) This is a podcast where, like we said, we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind... In this season finale, whether this is your first episode or your last, <laughs> hopefully not your last, not your last. Uh, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No. We're just <laughs> two girls who like to drink together and talk about women and their spots in history. You know, we're just enthusiastic, yeah. I like to say. Enthusiastic at best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're busy. You're busy. You are picking up daffodils because they are a-bloomin' where you are. 
<laughs> and hopefully you're at a spot where you can like pick some and take them into your teacher at school. Oh. Like your kids can take them in, you know, with that little tin yes. foil wrapped around the I bottom. How it. kids do that? If your kids are back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, I mean, how great is it seeing like, all the posts about like I haven't seen children in a year. I know it's really <laughs> wonderful. Uh, it's heartwarming, but you're busy, so you can't take time away to look up what these women look like. Mm-hmm. So before we get started, we're gonna get a little physical. Physical, physical. Ali, who are you doing and what does she look like? Well, I <laughs> am doing Madeline Albright, <laughs> which is a big fucking deal. Yeah. Uh, she's typically pictured in her later years. She has these like striking blue eyes, mm-hmm. uh, really pale skin with like a lot of rouge. <laughs> she does love a rouge. <laughs> <laughs> she has a pinched lip smile with a short styled blonde and or ish gray hair. <laughs> she's typically in a power suit adorned by a large, unique brooch. Madeline was born, which I feel like I have to say Madeline Albright. I know. You can't just call her Madeline. That's weird. It's like, what is she, a little schoolgirl in Paris? <laughs> little orphan? <laughs> what? That's Annie. No. No, Madeline was an orphan. Madeline. She was oh, an orphan. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Because Professor McGonagall was at oh, the Madeline, orphanage oh, taking Madeline. him around. What? No, that's a different one. I know, but it's just in my head. <laughs> Madeline. Madeline was Madeline. I fucked it up. It's Madeline. <laughs> like the cookie. Right. She was born in Central Southern Europe, so she has mixed... Wait, what? We'll get there. Okay. So she has mixed ancestry because there's a lot of ethnic groups that live in that region, but um, in 2013, The Guardian said that she was one of the 50 best-dressed over 50s. <laughs> there so you get go. It. And she has said in multiple interviews that her physical fitness and exercise regime is important and that she can leg brace, press, <laughs> press, 400 pounds. 400 pounds? Leg press, girl. What is like, an uh, elephant? That's crazy. crazy. No, that's not an elephant. Okay. <laughs> tiger at best i don't know how much anything weighs uh, um <laughs> especially since we don't we use pounds and not like <laughs> gram what do you use grams kilogram kilograms kilograms okay who are you doing okay i'm so sorry <laughs> i am doing eartha kit she has kind of a square face with an incredible jawline the perkiest cheeks ever these large cat-like eyes which turn upwards but then a long, thin, downward, downturned, downturned, <laughs> downturned mouth <laughs> that just changes her entire face when she shows off her signature smile with her big, bright, white teeth. She is a light-skinned, mixed woman, and she has always had kind of dark, short hair that is typically curled. And she has this petite, thin frame of obviously a dancer. And she knows exactly how to use it. <laughs> she looks oh. like a Cheshire, Cheshire cat, doesn't yeah. she? She, I, I mean, all I've ever wanted to be described as is a cat, but I don't look like no, a cat. Don't. So I'm like very <laughs> sad about it. But good for her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's I just, beautiful. She just has one of those signature faces and voices that like you can't mistake her for literally anyone else never and i also i've always loved like a wide face and she just has like all those features and she's just so 
She's so great. She, she <laughs> really, really is. But that's second story. That's second story. So we'll get into her later. Uh, so are you ready to learn what you're drinking? I am. It's so beautiful. What a garnish. Thank you. Uh, this is called Courage Not Cowardice. Ooh. And it's a take on the classic Tom Collins. Because I don't feel like we've done that yet. Mm-hmm. So what it is is an ounce and a half of gin one ounce of lemon juice, a half an ounce of simple syrup. And then the reason that it's changed is I added uh, a half an ounce of cinnamon liqueur. And then instead of topping it with um, club soda, I topped it with tonic water. Mm -hmm. And then usually the garnish for a Tom Collins is an orange kind of wrapped around a maraschino cherry. But I opted for a a blackberry. Mm, I love it. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Oh my gosh, that is so Isn't tasty. It great? And like, I love a Tom Collins because mm-hmm. gin is so evergreen. And mm. I really think the cinnamon liqueur on top of it, like really mixes well. It, I didn't like this drink looks so summertime, but tastes so Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like Madeline Albright. Just like <laughs> Madeline Albright. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. I don't either. All right. <laughs> tell me what you know about Madam Secretary the first. Okay. I'm glad you said secretary because I was like, I'm pretty sure she's the first secretary, of, the fe- the first female secretary of state for the yeah, United States. Like, not the first. That was Thomas <laughs> Jefferson, but good try. <laughs> um. So I know, yeah, that's. That she's that. Um, I know that she appears in two episodes of Gilmore Girls. Wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One episode. One. One episode of Gilmore Girls. Mentioned in all of them. Mentioned in all of them. <laughs> um, and I believe an episode of 30 Rock? Other one. No. Amy Poehler. Dang it. Yes. It's. <laughs> it is. It's Parks and Rec. Uh-huh. I love that when she's just like spilling her guts and like eating her breakfast. It's so perfect. <laughs> I love it um, but yeah, I know that she's like this really important person that I just feel like I know nothing about. It's just like she's iconic. Right. You know, which I sometimes feel like it's almost a detriment because then we don't actually inquire like who is that person yeah you learn one or two things about them and then you're just like well okay yeah exactly (laughs) good to know rory gilmore likes her so i guess i should too i mean she seems up there yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so let me tell you this story i was excited to research it i was like i thought it was going to be daunting it wasn't daunting Mm -hmm. it was like things were very succinct i mean she's written a million books about herself so (laughs) it's really helpful So Madeline Albright was born Marie Jenna Corbell on Mar- May 15th, 1937 in Prague, Czechoslovakia, which is present day the Czech Republic. She was the daughter of a Czech diplomat. Now, Madeline's legal name is Marie Jenna to this day. She has really? not legally changed her name, but when she started taking French lessons, she liked the French name for Marie and started going by Madeline, and that's what she's gone by ever since. So she is a Madeline. Madeline. <laughs> Madeline Albright. I'm going to do it the whole so time. So she is a French orphan. <laughs> <laughs> she's a French not orphan. Uh, but like her parents are very important. Stop French. that. <laughs> she's and she's not French. <laughs> Madeline, not Madeline. <laughs> Her dad was Joseph and her mom was Anna and Madeline never or Mar- I just 
<laughs> done. Okay. Her dad was Joseph and her mom was Anna. And Madeline had two younger siblings, a sister and a brother. At the time of her birth, Czechoslovakia had only been independent from Austria-Hungary for 20 years at the end of World War I. And her father was a diplomat that supported democracy in Czechoslovakia. But then the Nazis occupy Czechoslovakia in 1938 when she's like really young. Like yeah. she, she was born in 37, so she's two years old. And her family flees to England. So Madeline's parents sent her to live with her grandparents like out in the rural country of Czechoslovakia for a while while they were figuring out a way to get out of there. Mm -hmm. She believed at the time and for most of her life that it was her dad's political position that made them have to get out of there. We'll talk about why she was wrong later. Oh, okay. Her father worked for the Czech government and he kind of just goes into political exile. And her mom went on record as saying like with all of the possible and impossible planning that we did as soon as the Nazis came in, some good friends, lots of luck, and a little bit of bribes, this plan worked. Like, that's how we got out of there. So, like, don't throw shade on people who, like, didn't get out or didn't get out in time. Yeah. Like, it took so much with a high-powered father. Yeah. So they ended up escaping only 10 days after the Nazis took over. <gasps> oh, my gosh. While she was in England as a little child, she appeared in a film about refugees and the struggle of war. Wow. And she was given a stuffed animal as payment. There we go. To be in this film. <laughs> and they started her career. <laughs> <laughs> I would love if she kept that up. Like, I only get paid in stuffed animals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where's my daughter? She'd love I that. know. I was going to say, <laughs> Eliza's room is known on Rolling Road because it is her windows are filled with stuffed animals. I mean, I pull into my driveway and it's just unicorn butts <laughs> all over because the, the horns are facing outward dangerously. So, um, her family at first lived in, on Kensington Park Road and endured the worst of the Blitz like mm. in London. And later they moved to the outskirts. The family did attempt to return to Czechoslovakia after World War II. They were given this luxurious apartment, which ends up being pretty controversial because after the war, even like Czech-born people of German ancestry were kicked out of the country oh. and they got one of those apartments. Oh. So it's seen as like, it's what people do. They like judge based on ethnicity, but it wasn't like her family's choice. They were just in this apartment. Right. But they weren't there for long. <laughs> the return was very, very brief. Her father was made the Czechoslovakian ambassador to Yugoslavia, two countries that don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Living in Yugoslavia, her dad was really worried that his children would be exposed to Marxism. So he went and worked there, but they were taught by governesses instead of going to school. Mm -hmm. This is when Madeline goes to Switzerland, learns French and changes her name. Okay. But then also like Czechoslovakia becomes a communist party country as well. And we've got, you know, they split into Slovakia and the Czech Republic. So again, they end up refugees for the second time oh my in their life. On November 11th, 1948, when Madeline was 11 years old, they go and wait for their father in 
London or they go and wait for their father in the U.S. because he's going to drop some important papers off in London and then meet them there. So they go to Long Island and they put in all the paperwork for political asylum, claiming that their family was under danger in Czechoslovakia because of their father's previous connection to the democracy there. Her dad got a teaching position at the University of Denver and the family settled in Colorado. There we go. And this is <laughs> our entrance to the United States. <laughs> Madeline spent her teen years in Denver and graduated from Kent High School, which is in the suburbs around the city. She attended Kent High School and founded the school's International Relations Club. <laughs> so good for what her. A, again, what a Leslie Nope. Oh, I my know. gosh. Seriously, that's why she's her hero. I, I, yeah. mean, I think the Leslie Nope character has to be based. It has to be solely on her <laughs> she wasn't the only uh secretary of state though that would benefit from her father's wisdom her dad actually teaching at this university years and years later taught condoleezza rice what? <laughs> so two of the Con- three two of the three female secretaries of state were directly in like relation with this man oh my gosh i do love that <laughs> I mentioned 30 Rock earlier, and I just watched the episode where, like, Jack Donaghy's, like, dating Condoleezza Rice. (laughs) Yeah. And she keeps coming on the news, and he's like, did you see that? (laughs) She's totally thinking about me. And Lizzo was like, no, she's not. Stop it. You're so weird. (laughs) So... In any case, her dad is kind of a big deal. He later became the dean of the international relations of the school, and that building's now named after him. So, oh my gosh, okay. what up, my major? <laughs> get it, get it. My other major. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline would go on to attend Wesley College in oh. Boston, which is also okay. a big deal on a full scholarship. Oh. She majored in political science. She joined the College Democrats of America. (laughs) She became a U.S. citizen while going to college. And her senior thesis was on a previous prime minister from Czechoslovakia. There we go. So, I mean, she is just putting herself right into place. While she's going to college, she gets an internship at the Denver Post. And this is where she meets her future husband during a summer internship. His name was Joseph Albright. He was the son of the owner of Newsday, which is a big newspaper, and the family philanthropists. She's about to marry into some serious fucking money. Get that cash flow. Get it. Get it. it. She graduated with honors from Wesley College in 1959, and she said in one of her books that it was tradition for Wesley women to get married on their graduation day. Oh, (laughs) what? She she would never be so bold. She waited and got married three days later. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Wait. I'm sorry. You said it's a Wesleyan tradition? Yeah. like From the school? Yeah. Like the women... She said even in her time going there, the women were there primarily to get married. Right. And like we talked about in Julia Child yes, episode. And like you would MRS get engaged degree. and then the moment you graduated, you would get married. So three days after <laughs> she graduated from college. You know what? I appreciate that because I feel like she's like making a point that she's like, I didn't go to college to get married. I just so happened yeah. to like be getting married when I graduate. Like but she also um, doesn't really like this husband anymore. So I think <gasps> oh, she, no. she talks about 
this very openly and honestly in a lot of her autobiographies, which she says was hard for her because, you know, as a politician, you're taught to be right. Keep your scandals in your heart. (laughs) (laughs) But um, she does. She talks about it a lot. So for the marriage, she converted from Catholicism to and evangelical so that they could get married. So not that big of a change. (laughs) The Albright crew um, moved a lot for her husband's job. They lived in Missouri. They lived in Chicago. They lived in Long Island. They lived in Georgetown. In Missouri, her husband completed his military service, and she worked for the, like, Daily News there. In Chicago, he worked for the Chicago Sun-Times, and she worked for Encyclopedia Britannica. In New York, her husband began to work for his mother's newspaper, Newsday, which is, like, the he is the Huntsburgers. Okay. Like he is that money where it's like my parents own this and one day I have to own it and I'm going to be a douchebag because of it. (laughs) (laughs) How many Gilmore Girls references can we get in this episode? Enough. (laughs) Enough. I think (laughs) that was the year um, when they're in New York that Madeline gave birth to her twins, Alice and Anne. They were six weeks premature and had a really long stay in the hospital. So to distract herself from this sadness in her life and just being so upset about her two little babies, she started her post-grad studies. The family then moved to D.C. where Madeline continued her Russian lessons because that's what she was doing like Mm post-grad. She's studying now in D.C., Russian and international relations at a division of Johns Hopkins University. Wow. So she's like a baller. Wow. When they go back to Long Island, um, because her husband's aunt died and he has to take over a portion of the business and be a man, she continued to study, but this time at Columbia University. She ends up receiving her master's from Columbia in 1968 and worked as a fundraiser for a senator in his like president, like presidential campaign. And then also gives birth to her third daughter, Catherine, at the time. So now she's got three girls. Oh, my gosh. She took another 10 years to get her Ph.D. from Columbia and is like working for Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, not for Jimmy Carter, but for his national security advisor. She like has a little office, not to herself, but in the West Wing where she's doing research assignments. And one thing I really appreciate is that in a lot of interviews, she's like, it took me a really long time to get my PhD. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times for mothers, it takes a longer time to finish your PhD and for women in general, I think Mm -hmm. just like you're expected to, you can't just like quit everything and be like, I'm going to spend three years and get this degree. It's like, I'm doing it part time while I'm doing all the other things that I'm supposed to juggle. Right. So that was what she was doing, trying to be a wife. And she was very dedicated to marriage. Mm -hmm. She loved it. She was a fully married person. She was very dedicated to her three daughters, little baby girls. So school and work are important to her, but that's why it took her so long. Right. And she explains that very openly so that people understand that that's what it takes to be a woman with that much power. Right. And also to be like, if it takes you a long time, like I get it, (laughs) you know, and like, don't feel bad about that because, you know, I feel like sometimes people get like well yeah i have my phd but it took me 10 years and it's like okay you still fucking got it like that's insane 
this time in her life just smacked her in the fucking face. Madeline had believed that she was happily married. But in 1982, after 22 years of marriage, her husband left her for another woman. What? Until he left her, she had thought that she was happily married with a perfect life. I have two homes. I have three daughters. I have a rich husband. He's being groomed to take over his family's enterprise. And this tragedy is what she believes drove her to the White House. She was nothing but an obscure adjunct professor who sometimes worked on campaigns and she's like I was crushed and I had to put myself back together because within a dozen years of her divorce she would become the most powerful female official in American history to date to that date we're going to talk more about this guy. You want to hear some more? <laughs> yes, I do. I okay. do. Because he sounds like a fucking prick. Yeah. So they had been married uh, 22. She was barely 22 when she got married. Okay. They'd been married 22 years, which means half of her life was spent <sighs> with this man. She was 44. Um, she said that of her old relationship that the rage has now died down, but the hurt is still there. Her husband had initially tried to keep the new and old relationship, like her and his mistress at the same time, but they knew about each other and he would tell Madeline on a daily basis how much he loved her in comparison to that woman. Like you're a 70% today and she's a 30%. That's sick. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. And he openly said to her, Right, but, like, I deserve it because she's much prettier than, and younger than you. Oh, my God. I hate him. I know. And it's like he's about to take over this newspaper thing, so he thinks he deserves it. But fuck you, dude. Okay. Also, now I'm, like, really mad because I hate that now we know her as his name. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I hate that Albright has lived in it, you know pop culture forever and like importance forever when he was a dick like i hate that he's terrible okay now a lot of married women keep their last name so that they share a name with their children Mm -hmm. um but he should have had to change his name because he's a dick (laughs) (laughs) well that's the thing i'm not against women changing their names but like in this situation it It bums me out because she is like such an important like revered figure yeah And that bums me out because it's not like, oh, yeah, like it became my name and I loved it. It's like (laughs) she like like she said, she's like she's still hurt by it. She's still hurt by this guy that like she now carries his name. Yeah, she never remarries. Oh, my God. Never. Um, And she just said I was a very married person. So when I divorced, I had time to fill. (laughs) So... (laughs) She starts being a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University, and that's for over 10 years. She specializes in Eastern Europe, obviously, because that's Mm -hmm. her thing. She directed the university's program on women in global politics, and she starts to work her way into these political meetings because she's teaching on the East Coast where all the politics are happening. Mm-hmm. At first, it's weird. She was like, I would have these great thoughts in meetings. And I would say in my head, no, that's stupid. Don't say it. And then two minutes later, a guy in the room would say it. Oh and my she God. would be like, he would get all this praise. Like, oh, my God, that's so great. Wow. And she's like, man, fuck me. Like, why didn't I say that in her words? Fuck me. <laughs> 
I quote Madeline Albright. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> yeah, she never said that. This is me paraphrasing an interview I listened to. <laughs> um, she says I was often either one of or the only woman in the room for the majority of the beginning of my career. So it was really intimidating and I just had to learn to be powerful. So she works as a foreign policy advisor to all of these candidates. And by the time Bill Clinton is elected, Madeline's political career begins to hit its stride. So he nominates her as ambassador to the United Nations in 1993. And at the United Nations, she gains a rep for her tough mindedness and she is a fierce advocate for American interests. Um, she is real into using the military to fix problems. Okay. Because she was a refugee from two countries as a child. Mm -hmm. So it's like, where were the people helping? And she even said it She, I was listening to a stage interview and she was like, for me, Growing up in these bad situations, it just seemed like every time the American military showed up, things got better. Yeah. And that she feels the same about the UN. And she's just like, can somebody just come fix this shit? So that's like kind of her mindset. And okay. she's not into like full force, let's kill everybody, let's have right. wars. <laughs> she just is like, I think sometimes we pump the brakes on intervention because we're scared what's going to happen if we help or how much money it's going to cost. And right. like, we just need to help or like, do they want our help? Right. Like, you know, yeah, that's, and that's also a situation. Yeah, there are, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of questions you have to ask, yeah. which is like why people like her spend their entire lives studying this. And yeah. I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. She says in the UN, I found out quickly how to speak my mind because if I didn't speak up and just call out, then I wouldn't get a turn to talk and the U.S.'s voice would go unheard. So I needed to speak up. I can't even imagine the pressure of speaking for an entire country. Like absurd. The I <laughs> like whenever I like, you know, cause I was an international studies major. So I did like, you know, a lot of like, you're like, okay, you're this country. So like, how do you deal with this? And it was always like, what if this were fucking real? Like, what if <laughs> I was speaking for climate change on behalf of the, you know, Old Caribbean country. islands? Yeah, like, because I did that one time and it was like, this is stressful because, like, here in this classroom setting, it's like, yes, people are listening to me and they understand the economic impacts and the devastation that, like, climate change is causing me, right. you know? But really, who the fuck is listening on the world stage to the Caribbean islands? Fucking nobody. And nobody. it's get, I, yeah, it gets like really depressing when like you are like, it works so well in role play. And then you're like, but then people have to do this in real life. Yeah. And in real life, no, everybody only cares about themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so honestly, and I just want to point this out. <laughs> Say what you want about bill clinton and i could say a lot <laughs> but he has an eye for strong women yeah not only did he marry hillary rodham but he nominated rbg to the supreme court and madeline albright to yeah. be secretary of state so and as we say in our monica Lewinsky episode like she's a powerful woman she's just been silenced by bullshit right you know like <laughs> he really like <laughs> it's fucked up as he is i know he just has an eye for really strong women he yeah. gets it he can see it <laughs> like, he can see he just can't be it <laughs> he's like i see you girl now get over here so i can fuck yeah. you <laughs> god he's terrible 
terrible. the worst. Terrible guy. Oh, man. Oh. It's all that smooth jazz. Well, what about that? I was going to say, what about that saxophone? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I wanted to point that out because he is like in cahoots with a lot of really powerful women, and that's just funny. <laughs> okay. In the UN, she had a rocky relationship with the Secretary General. The main problem being that Madeleine Albright is always trying to start wars. But <laughs> <laughs> she, like, the problem is the UN doesn't have the power of law. They can suggest and they have peacekeepers. But as soon as the U.N. starts attacking people, then it's like, well, now you're a country and now you're like a law enforcement for the world. And the U.N. isn't supposed to be that. So the secretary general has to be really careful. And they're like, Madeline, stop it. (laughs) Bad. Chill out. Yeah, but she did. actually regret that she didn't push more to help with the genocide in Rwanda. Yeah. She was like, hindsight was 2020. I kept calling it like sporadic murders and didn't call it what it was. It was genocide. My fucking bad. So she calls herself out on that one. Well, there we go. Yeah. At one point, even there's Cuban military pilots that are shot down over like the Cuban American airspace. And she goes out and makes an announcement over international waters. That is not courage. That is cowardice. And that's where the name of our cocktail comes from, because Bill Clinton said that this is probably the most effective one liner of foreign affairs. <laughs> in his whole administration. Yes. But December 5th, 1996. On the eve of the day I was going to meet producer. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) Allie. Teal socks. (laughs) A twister board. Listen, this podcast wouldn't happen. Sweat pants. (laughs) Bangs. Bangs. Sweaty bangs. Greasy. You're playing twister. I'm also just referencing one very specific (laughs) photo photo of you and Jake in fourth grade. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I'll say we'll post it, but I have no idea where that is. I have it. I have it. I'll post it on Patreon only. (laughs) Okay. So President Clinton on this day nominates her to be the 64th Secretary of State. The Clinton group was split. Half of the group was like, yes. Madeline, do it. The other half was like, anyone but Madeline, because <laughs> she's a woman, and also nominate this guy. Because, you know, I this- own a favor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This would be the first woman to hold this position, and it would be the highest ranking female in all of U.S. history so far. Like, it's a very... And you know what? That's a slippery slope (laughs) to go down. It is. Like, (laughs) they're very worried. (laughs) If a woman can be the Secretary of State, what else can she be? What else can she be? Everything, I think. This is really upsetting. (laughs) Just what about this white guy, though? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? What we've got going is working. Let's just... The status quo is the status quo for a reason, everybody. Let's not be unreasonable. Do you see him? He's partially balding. He's white. He's over 65. And we love him. He'll be great. He's got a suit. An American flag tin. You know, he's got two suits. Two suits. Two suits. How many ties? A lot. (laughs) 20 plus. All red and blue, though. Because he's a daddy. Okay. You know what daddies get? 
ties. Ties. You're right. Sorry, this is a <laughs> weird rant I went on. <laughs> he's got this. Uh, <laughs> he's got the one that plays music on Christmas. Oh when... my gosh! But you don't wear that to no, like, no, 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 professional no. settings. That's for the grandkids only. That's for the grandkids, which he has 17 of because he's 65. He's <laughs> uh, not just a daddy, a granddaddy. <laughs> oh, this is getting. All weird. right, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what happens when I'm already two cocktails in. <laughs> The first half of the episode. We'll be all right. Bad. I think we'll be all right. Okay. The secretary of state is one of the first cabinet members that the president selects. So it's not an elected position. And they're the head of foreign affairs and the foreign affair advisor at the time. Like I said, Madeline first female to do this. They are fifth in succession to the presidency. So it's vice president, speaker of the house, the head of the Senate, and then the secretary of state. However, because Madeline was not born in the United States, she would have been skipped in the succession to the presidency. If we would ever get that far, we've only ever gone three deep. (laughs) What? Three deep. Well, when, when Richard Nixon resigned Ford took over right? yeah but but his vice president had already resigned so Ford took over as vice president so Gerald Ford is the only president who's was never elected hold on who was Nixon's vice president Spiro Agnew wow did you see that I wow. I didn't pause the podcast Ali <laughs> that was really impressive also now I feel like I get all the references that I've ever heard to Spiro mm. Agnew. Yeah. Okay. So, so he, he was, resigned and then Nixon He was resigned. the Speaker of the House? No. Spiro, yeah, Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was the Speaker of the House. Yeah. So, so he wasn't elected by the general public and he's the first president <gasps> to ever and the only president what? to ever not be elected by the general public. Because Spiro Agnew stepped down, he became vice president and then Nixon and then he took over. Wow. I Crazy, could never right? pass a citizen test. <laughs> <laughs> I might be able For to. For real. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a horror do i live here i don't know <laughs> most of us don't okay so. very interesting i did not know that yeah so anyway she would have been sad over. history <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a historian i'm <laughs> drunk uh so at this point between thomas jefferson who was the first and anthony blinken who is the current <laughs> we have had 71 secretary of states and three of them have been women <laughs> Madeline Albright, Condoleezza Rice, and Hillary Clinton. So most of my life, honestly, (laughs) which is great. Um, And she says of Bill Clinton, he gave me the opportunity that no other individual, male or female, has had to serve two full terms, one as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and one as the U.S. secretary of state. Pretty cool. Pretty impressive. Around this time, she's intervening to stop wars. She wants the U.N. to help. She's like, hey, guys. Wars destroyed my childhood. Let's keep going. But then they have to like vet her after. But she was unanimously agreed upon to be secretary of state. Both parties. This is only like 20 years ago. We used to love each other, guys. What's (laughs) happening? Um, This is what she thought. She thought they left Czechoslovakia because her dad was into democracy and that they were going to go after them. But when everybody looked into her family, they found out that she was born Jewish (gasps) and her family was Jewish and that three of her grandparents were killed in concentration camps. She didn't know. Nobody ever told any of the siblings. 
This is 1997. She's becoming the Secretary of State. And she found out that not only three of her grandparents, but 25 of her family members were murdered in concentration camps after the Nazis took over Czechoslovakia. They left after 10 days. They were months away from being murdered. Oh, my God. Months. The family. Dead. All of them. That's crazy. Wow. Right? I, the chills. I don't even understand (sighs) that. To be so far in your career that you're the fifth highest person in America and you didn't know that your entire family was murdered during World War II. I, that's insane. She said I was raised Catholic and then converted to evangelical. I had no idea. No one told me. They said, your dad's a diplomat. You have to get out. It was nothing about being Jewish. Oh my gosh. Well, because I'm like... The shitty thing is, like, I wonder if part of their parents' belief was, like, what if this just keeps going? And, like, if they don't know, then, like, if the Nazis win or whatever and, like, this horrible anti-Semitism. I mean, obviously, it's still fucking rampant. Right. Like, but, you know, maybe they'll be safe if they just don't know. Yeah. Which is so sad because then they're losing out on this incredible cultural heritage like yeah and i just think i mean the reason they got out of there so fast is because her dad was a diplomat so i think like he knew what was coming down the pike and so many families didn't know how bad it was gonna be so that's why they like hid him away at their grandparents and like went through Mm. all these measures to get out of the country and she's like now i'm connecting all the dots and i'm like oh my like we were very close to dying oh my god so Mm. There you go with that. <laughs> wow. And just like what a like a privilege also to be like and like I'm sure it makes her think like I only got out because he was a diplomat. Yeah. And because like we had connections like. So many people didn't. Yeah. It's so crazy. Mm. So during her tenure as secretary of state, Albright remained a prominent military intervention forceful campaigns, democracy, human rights. Woo woo. She was really into NATO and she was like, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but the, in the early nineties, the genocide happening in Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Serbia was just horrendous. And she's like, they're calling it Madeline's war because Mm -hmm. she's like, we're going to go in and bomb them. Mm -hmm. We're going to get, out of there and like colin pals like all against it and she said what is the point of you saving this superb military colin if we can't use it (laughs) (laughs) is one of her quotes she's like stop these people are killing everyone stop them um she did get criticized a little bit though for the way that she talked about the serbs which is hard because everybody in that region is like ethnic groups it's like the serbs and the turks and the croats and like all of that and it's just i she was so young when she left there i don't think she harbored any ethnic hate towards people but she did harbor hate towards people who are like committing ethnic cleansing like she just doesn't like it so she worked with the sovereignty of hong kong and with the ambassador of kenya and with pre 9-11 middle east intervention she was at the time that she was in office the highest ranking official to ever visit north korea and talk about the nuclear program um but during 
this time, her jewelry becomes very interesting to the general public. And she starts famously wearing brooches and pins that express her thoughts. <gasps> After the Iraq media referred to her as a serpent, she famously wore a snake pin for their next meeting. <laughs> I mean, she's like definitely a Slytherin. Oh, my gosh. She had a lot of wild jewelry that quickly became trademark like snakes and spiders and like other big animals her favorite though is a heart that her youngest daughter made but in 2009 they did an exhibition of her jewelry in the museum of art and design in manhattan okay so this is really cool because i feel like women in power are criticized and like you know so often for their clothing choices and their jewelry choices and a lot of times it's like i didn't even think about this and now you're like getting mad at me for it and she's like no, I'm going to make, like, if you're going to pay this much attention to it, like, you know, what I'm wearing, I'm going to make a statement with mm-hmm. it. It's the Mockingjay pin. Absolutely. For sure. And, you know, it, it's a really cool exhibition. If you look up pictures of it, they, like, took her, like, spider brooches and they have them dangling from, like, <laughs> strings and stuff. I'm like, ew. That's so cool. But there's even a, a coffee table book called Read My Pins. <laughs> 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 that you can get about her jewelry if you want it. Oh. After her work in the Clinton administration, people thought that she would take a place in Czech politics. They were like, you know, go and work there. Even the president of the country was like, I feel like you'd be a great successor to me. Like, come be the president of the Czech Republic. And she's like, that's flattering, but no thanks. (laughs) Albright's tenure ended when Bill Clinton left office in 2001. And she founded the Albright Group, a consulting firm. She's working with the New York Stock Exchange. She's on every board of directors, every foundation, council, club, task force. She's on it. Albright was, of course, for many years friends with Hillary Clinton, and she later supported Hillary's presidential bids in 2008 and 2016. She drew criticism, though, when she said there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women, which is a super famous quote of hers (laughs) that I love. And people were like, gender is not the only consideration when you're choosing a candidate, but which is true. But she, like, was like, okay, I get it. Wrong place, wrong time. I wasn't criticizing the Bernie Sanders supporters. Right. I was just saying, like, women It's support like a general women. thing. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, like, this specific moment. Right. Um, I don't think she meant it as, like, a fuck you if you're not voting for Hillary. Yeah. It's like, no, just, like, in general, like, be behind each other. Yeah, like, support women. And she said, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And even if she was thinking, fuck everybody else, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like, who cares? Let her think that. Um... Of course, President Obama would end up nominating Hillary Clinton to Madeleine Albright's previous position. She began to work also with the Obama administration. And at one point, somebody said to her, how long will you blame all of your problems on the previous administration? And she said, forever. (laughs) (laughs) So... In 2012, President Obama awarded her the Medal of Freedom, and she, of course, ended up describing former President Trump as the most anti-democratic leader the nation has ever seen. In terms of controversies, she said things in the political sphere that sometimes have gotten her in trouble because she does speak openly about war. Mm -hmm. She did an interview where this is pre nine 11. They were like bombing 
Iraq and there were millions of children dying and the interviewer said we've heard that at this 60 minutes I think we've heard that half a million children have died I mean that's more children than died in Hiroshima and you know is it worth the price and she said we think it's worth the price (laughs) which is really bad and she was like Yes, I know. I got those interviews are so much longer than 60 minutes. They like pare them down. It's like she was saying in like the common good is so hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Like because either way with war, if you do something, people die. If you don't do something, people die. So she was making a general statement about it. But the segment won an Emmy. So (laughs) for 60 minutes, but. There was also an art ownership lawsuit because her dad had had that condo in Czechoslovakia that the Germans were kicked out of. And those German people like sued for some of their art back or something Uh later on in her life, which was kind of weird. But really, as she grew older, her sense of humor grew. And she said it's something she loves about herself. She wishes that her too serious childhood self would have had a better sense of humor because she's proud of it. She got into a famous twitter war with conan o'brien for fun (laughs) and then like we said at the top she appeared on both parks and rec and gilmore girls as herself in the same role giving young ambitious women a boost that they needed in a moment when they didn't know if they could make it both segments are Leslie Nope and Rory Gilmore questioning their legitimacy in the field of which they work. And she just is there on the television being herself saying, you got this. Madeline went on to be a frequent columnist on foreign affairs and wrote a number of books between 2006 and 2020. Most of them about herself. (laughs) They are called Madam Secretary, The Mighty and Almighty, Memo to the President-Elect, Read My Pins, Prague Winter, and Fascism, A Warning. She said, all your life, I was told not to talk about me, but these books, it's time to talk about it. Madeline is currently 83 years old and living in Virginia in the United States. And that is her story. I love it. So far. <laughs> wow. There's just like, again, like so much that I just like didn't know about her. Like I, yeah, yeah that was super interesting. <laughs> you expect it to be uh, like, I almost expected it to be like the Hillary Clinton story. Right. You grow up, you're in a rich family. You go to the fancy college, you go to the fancy school, you marry the politician, you be the politician. Yeah. Wife. You like, and that just so was not her. Yeah. Like I totally thought it was going to be like the track that like someone like Julia Child was supposed to go on. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Of yeah. like, you did all the things. But, like, she didn't do all the things because, like, that wasn't her life at all. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah, that was wild. Okay. <laughs> so there she is. That's Madeline. We just, right. That's a banger, guys. We a just covered a banger. banger. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to go get some more cocktails because we're empty because yep. these were delicious. <laughs> You're welcome, Miss Krista. <laughs> we'll be right back. Bye. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast 
because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Uh, so much on your plate. <laughs> I mean, you are finishing an iconic season. A truly iconic season with a classic Katie pink drink. Remember when I only used to make pink drinks? Uh, when you were pouring <laughs> it in the kitchen, the first thing I thought was, ah, it's pink. I know. I love it. It's springtime. It's back. That's it. I know. I just wanted to make something like super fresh and pink and fun and lively. So that's what this is. Um mm. Are you ready to drink it, I guess? I mean, like, should we just get into Let's it? Let's do it. I want you to tell me what it is. I want to take a sip. I want to be enlightened by Eartha Kitt's drink. Okay. So this is called The Most Exciting Woman in the World. And it is two ounces of gin, an ounce of apple brandy, uh, just like a half teaspoon or just like a dash of maraschino cherry juice and fresh mint. You shake all of that together. And then you pour it into a glass, get a, give it a splash of club soda, and then you garnish it with mint. Wow. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. Mm. So the reason it's pink is solely the maraschino cherry. Yes. Okay. Only the maraschino cherry juice. Very cool. Yep. Definitely a very gin heavy. Oh, it is gin <laughs> heavy. just gin. We're going to be so drunk. But, hey. This is, okay. this is us on our journey us. to martinis. Mm-hmm. This is one step closer. Miss Krista sent us um, a, a message of the martini gin that we should get to have Ooh. good martinis. Oh. So we'll thank, thank you. Thank you. We absolutely will because we want to be the kind of class of ladies that, you know, drink martinis. Drink martinis but we just haven't been able to do it yet. Yeah. And also before we dive into Eartha Kitt. If you are somebody who listens to our book interview episodes, which I know not everybody listens yeah. to every podcast, every <laughs> single episode, but we did do one with um, about the book Lady Romeo, and that was nominated for an award this year. So we're just so proud. Yeah. And truly one of like my favorite books that we've read for the show. Yeah. It's so good. And the award is an LGBTQ plus like novel award. So it's so cool Ugh. to like have that be now a part of our show's history. So I'm yeah. super excited for Tana and it's great. Amazing. Tana, right. Tana, 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 I think. Tana. Every time I do it, I'm the worst. <laughs> <laughs> because I think she pronounced the same way that Tana French does. Who right. is my favorite mystery author. Well, um, all right. So, before we get into this story, what do you know about Eartha Kitt? Santa baby. Yep. <laughs> um, I know she wants a yacht and it's not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about her life. I okay. mean, I know that she was a singer. I know mm-hmm. that she was a dancer, a performer. Um, I believe that she is of mixed ancestry. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, she wasn't growing up in the greatest time in America to be of mixed ancestry. Mm-hmm. But who is really? True. So <laughs> tell me more a about truly her life. timeless problem. <laughs> right. Timeless um, to be a person of color. How fun. Um, all right. So I got most of this from, so I watched the Eartha Kit documentary all by myself. Um, I watched a YouTube video. Um, it was actually episode one by this girl, um, Black Story Kyla is the YouTube name, and she is doing a YouTube video series called Her Story. Um, and then I listened to a podcast called More Than Amuse, and I got the brunt of like, so there's one big scandal that everyone associates with Eartha Kit, and I got that all from an episode of Beyond Reproach because Stephanie does such incredible research on that scandal that Mm. I felt like she basically cut through the bullshit and was like, okay, here's actually what happened. Well, (laughs) Stephanie and Tux do an incredible job. It's unbelievable. With actual history. Actual historical research. That show. She went to like the microfiche, I think. She's like, I read newspapers about this. I never do that. Um, I did that when I was in college. Right. Um, so shout out to Stephanie. I'm going to plagiarize all your research on that incident. Well, it's not plagiarism because you've just said it. Citing my sources. (laughs) Um, now we're just going to paraphrase throughout. (laughs) Exactly. You're welcome, everyone. Okay. So Eartha Kitt was born on January 17th, 1927 on a cotton plantation in South Carolina. Her mother, Anna Mae Keith, was a migrant farmer of African and Cherokee descent, and Eartha never knew who her father was. She only ever knew that he was a white man who may have raped her mother. We don't exactly know, but we know that whoever he was, he abandoned her and had his name blocked out of the birth certificate. Some say that he was the cotton plantation owner's son, which obviously tracks with what we know about the situation on pla- in, like, in places like that. Um, and others say that he was a local white doctor. But honestly, like, it doesn't really matter who he was exactly because the fact remains that he was a white man in position of power and she was a poor 16-year-old woman of color. And uh, I just feel like, that's all you need to know about the situation. It doesn't matter exactly what the details, because like, obviously this was not a super consensual s- situation. No. Yeah. 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 That's so, a, That's power sex. Exactly. Um, at its core. Um, so Eartha spent the earliest years of her life helping out her mother on the cotton plantation. But since Eartha was mixed race and she was light skinned, it kind of made her and her mother even more outsiders because some considered mixed children, bad luck, Some members of her own family even kept their distance. And, of course, the white people wanted nothing to do with her. So Eartha just never felt like she belonged anywhere. When her mother finally did remarry, Eartha's stepfather, um, who was a black man, said that he wanted nothing to do with her because she was too light-skinned. So Eartha was sent away when she was around seven years old to live with some relatives. No! Yeah. But this opened her up to extreme abuse, Um, In one case, two children from this family took her outside and tied her to a tree. She said they whipped her and beat her until her blood dripped from her body and mixed with the clay beneath her. I don't. How could you do that to a child? And this is like what's scary is like it's other children doing it to her. I just when I was listening to people talk about it, just like. It's so horrible. I just. 
I mean, I know that there are absolutely no excuses at all, but it just shows so, like, clearly so far in this story that, like, traumatized people traumatize other people. Mm -hmm. Like, there are people, and not everybody who's gone through trauma does that, but there are people in living in the South in the United States who dealt with so much pain and torture from the moment they were born. It's Mm -hmm. like, how can you see straight through the, through the clouds like that? Oh, exactly. So in 1935, when she was eight years old, some people at a local church discovered that Eartha was being physically abused. I don't know how they found out, but they basically were like, this cannot go on this poor girl. So they searched for just any family member to take her in. And they finally found um, Aunt Rose, who lived in Harlem, New York. And they wrote her a letter saying, basically, if you don't come down here and pick this girl up, she is going to be either beaten or starved to death. So she took her in. So she's eight years old. She moves up to Harlem, New York, which was a lifesaver. But when asked if she saw it as like you know like people asked her like earth like did you see your aunt as like kind of a savior figure like i mean she picked you up and she helped you she was like i mean i don't really see her that way she was just another person who kind of reluctantly took me in because i had no place else to go she was like she wasn't reaching out to help me she was kind of like oh okay i guess like she'll die if i don't take her so like yes send her up yeah eartha felt like a burden on her aunt exactly Because her aunt, she always describes her. She's like, she was, she was a tall, beautiful woman. It seems to me like she was just a woman who like didn't really want kids. And now she like has this eight year old with her. And a lot of Eartha's early life is kind of muddled because I think that Eartha was confused for a lot of it because like nobody was telling her what was up. And so I don't know. It kind of sounded like she was also kind of physically abusive towards her, but I'm not really sure. Um, But we know that Eartha ran away a lot when she lived there and she would seek refuge with the neighbors, which thankfully now, I mean, she lives in an apartment building. Mm -hmm. So she can like go downstairs or upstairs or down the hall and like find someone to kind of take her in and they're take close care of enough her. that you have friends that are nearby. Exactly. Um, and there was also like a mental element to mental element to this abuse because the aunt Rose just like told her one day, she's like, well, I'm actually your birth mother. The woman down South who raised you. Um, that's not your mother. I'm your actual mother, which really confused Eartha because like it wasn't true. It didn't seem like, I don't know. It's just like, I feel so bad because her childhood is just so confusing. It's like all the adults in her life were just lying to her and abusing her. I I hate that. But she's in Harlem in the 1930s and she finds herself around all of these musicians in her building and in her neighborhood. One of the people that would kind of help her out when she wanted to run away was this man in her building. And he was like, all right, well, if you're going to be here, I'm going to teach you how to play piano. And so he starts to teach her and she is just a natural and she loves music. And he's like, wow, like you actually have like a really good, like a talent for this. And I feel like music is actually the savior in her life. It is something that gives her purpose, purpose. It gives her drive and it gives her just something to 
fucking work towards. So when she it's time for high school, she gets accepted into the Metropolitan Vocational School for like arts. It's basically a performing arts school. Right. Um, she was so talented and stood out so much that when she's 16, she earned a scholarship to train with Catherine Dunham. Wow. This famed African-American dancer and choreographer. So... There are a couple different versions of this story. Some say that, like, she was dared to audition. Another one is, like, she was, like, in a store, and she was seeing this girl buy makeup, and she was like, why are you buying makeup? You look so beautiful. And she was like, oh, yeah, I know. She was like, I'm buying it because I'm a dancer with Katherine Dunham. And she was like, what is that? <laughs> and she's like, come on, I'll show you. And then she auditioned and got into this company, immediately got this scholarship to dance. And then she was so good that she hired her, full time to be a part of the company. Well, do you know what's so interesting is that children crave structure. Yeah. And I, I mean, adults crave structure. That's why we all have these huge planners where we like write <laughs> stuff down and then we don't do what we say we're going to yeah. do, but we do write it down. And it's like, it seems like she had no structure. She didn't, the adults weren't giving any form of like, here's what we do on Mondays. Here's what yeah. we do on Wednesdays. And it was like, Piano has structure. Yeah. Dance has structure. There are rules. There are guidelines. When I do this, this happens. Yep. And it's like, that's how sometimes people need to thrive. No, absolutely. So um, she drops out of high school. <laughs> kind of a classic unstructured way. But do no, it. she dropped out because she was like, I'm going to this performing arts school so I can be a dancer one day. Yeah. And now I'm, get- I'm 16 and I'm getting paid to dance right. with a professional company. Like, yeah, I'm going to fucking leave. So yeah, the most <laughs> successful people who go to Harvard are Harvard dropouts. Right. So this is her ultimate ticket out. She starts touring with this dance company all over the U.S. and then internationally. They even performed at Buckingham Palace for Queen Elizabeth. Whoa. I mean, this company was a big fucking deal, which also means that we need to do an episode on Catherine Dunham because she was basically this person that was like, I am going to bring like African dance and Caribbean dance like all to the U.S. And like I'm going to combine it with like ballet. And she just created like something totally new and interesting. And I feel like we need to do her story now. (laughs) So she travels with this company and dances with them for years. But when she's 21, they stop in Paris and she's like, you know what? I'm going to stay this time. So she quits the company. She leaves the group, which is a really bold move because that is a good, solid paying gig. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to strike out on my own. So she stays in Paris. She starts singing around the nightclubs and people just adore her. I mean, how could you not? So she's doing this. She becomes fluent in French and she's just a total favorite among the local Parisians. And one day while she's performing, she gets this note. She's like, Oscar Wells, the famed movie director, wants to meet her. He's like in the club that night. Wow. So they meet and she's like, oh, yeah, we're just having cocktails with all the people, you know, doing the Paris thing. And he just like falls in love with her. (gasps) And he tells people Eartha Kitt is the most interesting woman in the world. This is what I named this cocktail after. Of course. Because this is when she was nobody. And he just meets her and is like, you're the most interesting person I've ever met in my entire fucking life. Uh, And he's a famed director. She must keep a good conversation. 
I mean, she definitely does. If you ever see interviews with her, she's fucking wild. Um, and so he just becomes fascinated with her. And he's like, you know what? I think you would really translate on stage. So he start, he asks her to start in as Helen of Troy in his stage production of Dr. Mm. Faustus mm. in 1950. Now, I do want to say that I think a lot of people think that they had an affair and that's how she got ahead, but she said that's just not true. They just had a wonderful professional relationship because that can exist in the world. Really? I know. (laughs) And I want to make a point of it because she does, because I feel like she gets really offended with being like, oh, like Orson Welles just like, wanted to bang you so that's why he put you in this stage production she's like no he actually just appreciated me because i was a talented artist like Uh, fuck off i was good at my job yeah so now she's got that triple threat card stamped sealed and approved Mm. she's a dancer she's a singer and she's an actress and now she's gonna be moving up onto broadway she gets hired for a new review called new faces of 1952 Mm. and we've talked a little bit about reviews before but it's kind of like a show of all your favorite hits whether and like and like they don't need to like link up into a story or anything like it's just like song after song after song It's like cats, but better. Exactly. Um, And sometimes there are performances that stand out from the other ones. And that came in the form of the song Monotonous, sung by, of course, Eartha Kitt. People loved her because the way she sings is incredibly unique. She almost does like characters within her songs. She kind of tricks you. And it's like, oh, she's just talking and like doing a funny voice and like, you know, you know, what like what is she even doing can she sing and then she just starts belting out you're like oh my gosh she's a really good singer like but that's the beauty of her songs i feel like she just almost tricks you into thinking that she can't sing yeah and then she fucking pulls it out um and she just has an incredible stage presence and so i watched this interview with her which was so great um she's talking on this show about (laughs) the show is all about free speech and it's like run by like this like Just, like, older, like, gray-haired white guy who's, like, very, like, I talk about free speech on NPR, and this is it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And (laughs) he's very polished. (laughs) And he asks her about this song. He's like, so you got your, like, first hit with this song called Monotonous. And and she's talking, and she's like, well, it's funny because, ironically, the song was too monotonous for me. So... I told the producers of this show that I needed a bunch of chaise lounges to be placed on the stage so I could use them because this song just needed something. (laughs) (laughs) So she asks the director for these chaise lounges and she dances over all of them and she's posing and she's doing this and she's doing that and she's kicking up her legs. And in the interview, all these years later, I mean, this is like in the 90s and she's kicking her legs up in the air and this is what i did and she's like reenacting it and then she sits on this man and he is like oh my god (laughs) he goes well this has never happened on this show (laughs) i mean she's like 70 years old when she's doing this she's wild i love that she's perfect um (laughs) but yeah because she's just like that's who she was she was like I know that you want me to do it this way, but I'm going to do it this way because it's going to be better and people are going to fucking love it. (laughs) Well, I always get interested in that when I watch like performances at the Grammys and Mm. how they're all just like so, so different. And I know the Grammys really tries to be like, 
what do you envision yeah. the stage looking like? And I just feel like it's such an expression of yes. what they wanted. Because if you're on a world tour, you can't change it for every song. Yeah. You can't like, it's just so much to move around and to do and to expect to work in every city. But on the Grammys, you just need it to work once. Yep. And I just, man, I get into it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible and this seems like what this was it was like oh I yeah want the chaise lounges i'm gonna sing it this one time and here's yeah. how it should look and honestly i guarantee you that her choreography changed every night because oh, yeah. like she just did what she fucking wanted to <laughs> <laughs> this is what feels good so the song monotonous totally launches her music career and this led to her creating her first album in 1942 which featured of course monotonous ceci bon um I Want to Be Evil, which is a great song, which I didn't know about until actually last week when it appeared on a jazz, like, you know, radio station. And I was like, that's so weird. I'm doing Arthur Kit next week. And it's amazing. Because your phone heard you. It's true. Um, <laughs> and, of course, on her debut album was a little song called Santa Baby. <laughs> I didn't know that this was just on her album. I thought that she um... was like asked to do it's it for a christmas collaboration the best earth it's song. the best it's obviously one of her most famous and maybe least credited i know i didn't know that she sang it until like last year oh, interesting yeah um yeah i love that song it's so good but when people first heard it they were pretty upset <laughs> Is it too sex positive? It was too sexy and inappropriate. So a lot of radio stations banned the song. <laughs> They're like, um, I want Bang Crosby singing <laughs> about kill Christmas in Killarney. I want Elvis I don't, only. <laughs> I don't want this malarkey. Like, they were really upset. They're I mean, like, she says I need a ring. She's. <laughs> she's also asking for a proposal. Also, let's be clear. She's asking for a proposal and like physical things <laughs> like a car yeah. and <laughs> a yacht and really it's not a lot as every woman um, deserves and a ring i mean not on the phone yeah <laughs> she's, very, she's being very clear about her puns exactly but yeah people were like this is too much but of course <laughs> it's like, too much for a woman to ask much. for what she I wants don't like it how dare she <laughs> But as usual, the controversy only made the song more popular. And mm, by 1953, mm -hmm. it was the number one selling Christmas song. Do it. Because you had to buy it on the little tiny vinyl. Mini <laughs> <laughs> one. And I really want to emphasize that while this is going on and while she's having this debut album and she's on Broadway, she is really fucking famous yeah everyone wants her in every movie broadway show tv show like she's all over the place by 1960 she received her star on the hollywood walk of fame damn i know so i have a question yes what year did this album come out 1952 52 so yeah. i'm trying to decide in my head mm -hmm. when jackie kennedy got the light blue Ooh. convertible because literally Eartha Kitt asks for a convertible that's light blue. I mean, I always associate the Kennedys with the 60s. So, yeah, so when was Kennedy assassinated? 68 or 9. Because it was right around when MLK was. Oh, this is... Okay. So, yeah. So, when she got it, when she was, like, 
in college. It might have been around the same time. I think that uh, Eartha Kitt inspired her. Oh, my God. <laughs> light blue. Exactly. It's very, like, it's Oh, something... God, I should have made the cocktail light blue. <laughs> no. Light pink. Light red. That's what pink is. Um, so the 60s also brought something else into Eartha's life. A husband named John William McDonald. Um, but we're terrible, not going to talk about him at name. all. The marriage only lasted five years and there really isn't much on him because what this actually gave her was the true love of her life. Her daughter, Kit, who was born on November 26, 1961. Did she name her daughter Kit Kit? Uh, no, so she was, she's Kit McDonald. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. She pulled a Miranda Hobbs because Brady, that is Brady? the number one question I Brady have. Hobbs. Is he Brady Brady? Brady Brady? <laughs> I don't think about that too often. We've mentioned every show we love tonight. I know. It's a true, true season finale. Um. So, yeah. So, she names her Kit McDonald and she loves her daughter so much. This drink's getting me fucked up, Katie. Me too. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. I love it. I should have stuck to the original recipe of simple syrup because I feel like this maraschino cherry juice is not cutting it down enough. Ooh. So in 1967, <laughs> <laughs> she gets this incredible opportunity to portray Catwoman. On the Batman TV show. Of course she did. We all know it. Which she fucking loved. And she said it was the luckiest thing to ever happen to her. So the part had originally belonged to Julie Newberg, but she had left the show. So they tapped Eartha Kitt on the shoulder. And she just made the part completely her own to the point where she cannot help but give a perfect little growl whenever she talks about her famous leather-clad character. Like... I was watching her documentary and like literally she's like walking by this little girl and she's like, do you know who I am? She's like, I'm Catwoman. Like, wow. <laughs> every single interview. She's like, no, no, no. Wow. Like she growls all the time. I love I that. I love it. Okay. Two things. Okay. One, Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. So don't email me. Damn. I was Sorry. Say 64. We were way off. See, I was going moon landing was 69. So oh, I was like, okay. I was, I was up high. I was you thought he was here for it or yeah. just gone. Yeah. Just yeah. passed. <laughs> but anyway, I love that an early iteration of Catwoman is a woman of color because Absolutely. We, we have definitely done that in different ways. Obviously, like Holly Berry's portrayal of Catwoman is not highly respected, but there are other I women. I loved of, it. I did, too. It's just the other people other than they us. They don't <laughs> like it. Other they're people. Swine. They're not like us, but <laughs> they don't appreciate Holly Berry for who she is, a star. <laughs> You didn't have to say it like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I do. Um, I, I like th- I like that aspect of her playing Catwoman. It seems like a very early woman of color being a super, I know super villain, but still a loved character. A loved character. And also, I just feel like she brought this sexiness to it that just wasn't there before. Yeah. <laughs> like, she was like, I'm here. I'm here to fucking stay. And also I want to talk about the fact that she was like 
38 when she did that? Hell yeah. She was almost 40. Ew. And then she's Catwoman looking so fucking good. And I also didn't realize that she was only in like three episodes. Yeah. Which is so funny because it is one of her most iconic roles, something she's constantly associated with and something that she felt like was so important to her career. And like three episodes. I love that. <laughs> like, also, who the hell has heard of Julie Newberg? And there's no fucking Eartha Kitt being like, I own this fucking role. Also, I didn't say ooh because she was almost 40. I was saying ooh because I'm almost 38, which is almost 40. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree. She owned it. And remember when we did the episode on Selena Kyle, which is Catwoman? Yes. She was introduced in the same comic as the Joker. Mm. So she's one of the earliest Batman villains. Yeah. It's such an important role. And she owns it. Oh, she totally does. Absolutely. Um, so she's Catwoman. She's all over the place. She's everybody's favorite person. Mm. But in 1968, Everything changes. No. So it's the 60s. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War. And LBJ, our president, has declared yet another war. The war on crime. Oh, I was going to say on drugs. Is probably lumped in there. But I think that was Reagan's thing. I feel like like Reagan was was the war on drugs. Yeah. So he's very upset about the levels of juvenile delinquency. So him and Lady Bird set out to do something about it. So she sets up this ladies' luncheon called the Women's Doers. The Women's Doers Luncheon. And she invites about 50 women to talk about what citizens can do to help ensure safe streets. Wow. And Eartha Kitt is invited because as a woman of color who had grown up poor in the streets of Harlem, she had already been involved in helping kids out. So I want to make this clear. <laughs> when she was invited, she had already been doing work on this forever. So even when she was a nobody in her first dance troupe, she would give kids free dance lessons who couldn't afford it. And then, when she was famous, she started the Kittsville Youth Foundation in 1965 in response to the Watts riots in Los Angeles, California. So, like, she was like, oh, my gosh, I need to get these kids, like, into something fucking else. So she would give them free dance lessons. She'd be like, anybody who wants to, like, come here. I will help you. I'll give you dance lessons. Like, you know, and, like, I talk about this somewhere else i know i have notes about it somewhere else but like in her documentary she not only is giving them dance lessons but she is this person acting as a celebrity being like you can do more and i as a celebrity believe in you Mm. and then she's also like growing vegetables in her garden and bringing them and being like i know that like you live in a fucking food desert so like here's some vegetables to take home everybody take them like she's incredible that's so she's definitely like a good person to have around because she's actually involved in like getting kids off the streets and into creative spaces um and that foundation is in fact still around today and offers free dance programs to kids who otherwise could not afford it love it um and she also wanted to help kids with personal development grooming physical fitness diction and poise so she's not just like come for dance lessons she's like i'm going to teach you about how to make it 
you know and just yeah. these things that like they're probably not getting from some like anywhere else well she knew what it was like to not have adults in your corner absolutely so she's like i'm gonna be the adult in their corner she also really got involved in a dc-based group called rebels with a cause so they were focused on cleaning up their neighborhoods and building youth centers but what was important about this group is that they were people who lived in the area which is really fucking important because like other people coming in and be like you should put a flower box there and then everything will be good and give me a little wink it's like no um so -hmm. these are people that are actually like actively involved and like know the community know the people and they're like yeah we're gonna clean it up but we're also gonna build facilities for these kids to fucking go to absolutely so she had even before this infamous luncheon that we're about to talk about she had testified in front of congress to get rebels with a cause more funding she was like these people like they're doing good work so give them some fucking money and this is a year before this luncheon And after this, she had actually been appointed to a special position on LBJ's Citizen Advisory Board on Youth Opportunity. I feel like something bad is coming. I mean, okay, so... What's coming? (laughs) I'm feeling like... I can feel you ramping up and the tone of your voice is changing. I'm ramping up. Something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. Okay. So, anyways, this highly qualified woman gets invited to this luncheon Mm -hmm. and the ladies start spitballing ideas on like, what can we possibly do? Of course, Lady Bird Johnson's big push was for beautification projects. Like if we just plant trees and flowers, kids won't do drugs. Nope. And then, especially since wasn't she like an alcoholic? Probably. All first ladies are. I I, I heard that somewhere. (laughs) I, I definitely heard that she did a TV spot and was drunk during it. Oh, well, we have to cover her. I'll now. have to like fact check that. Okay. But I'm Stephanie positive. Domingo, fact check us. Because this is all Stephanie's research, by the way. <laughs> so suddenly LBJ, Mr. LBJ comes in. He makes a surprise appearance at this lady's lunch. And like he wasn't supposed to fucking be there. Don't come. And of course, I can just imagine Lady Bird being like, I fucking told you this was my thing. And he's just there with his ginormous penis. And he starts talking about. Is that about- a thing? yes what okay that's the other half of the beyond reproach episode is about how president lyndon b johnson had like a ginormous penis and he would just whip it out in front of people and make them uncomfortable because it was huge and that's why there's a scene in the crown where lbj is peeing and he turns around and the person is like oh my god this again because he did it all the time Go listen to Tuck's talk about LBJ's peen because it's insane. My mouth is... <laughs> my jaw's on the floor. I mean, I listen to a lot of Beyond Reproach. Oh, this one, not... this episode is a is a hidden gem. It's so Heard good. That. Wowza. Okay. So he would literally use it to, like, make international, like, deals or something like that. He'd be like, this is my penis, so listen to what I have to say. It's crazy. That's everything that's wrong with the world. Everything that's it. wrong with the world. Okay. <laughs> Tuxler's little thank you very much. Um, so he makes this surprise appearance at this luncheon and he starts talking about how the real people to blame in all of this mess are really the mothers. They just should have known better and they should really be taking better care of their children because at the end of the day, if they would just lay down the law a little bit, the children wouldn't be so crazy. <laughs> 
says a dad that hasn't reached children. And then he thanks the women. He goes to leave. <laughs> he just like says this bullshit and then goes to leave. Eartha Kitt stands up and she stops him and she says, well, then what do we do about delinquent parents? The parents who have to like go to work and don't have the time and the money to keep a faithful eye on their children. And Johnson goes, well, that's what daycare centers are for. <laughs> Right, with what money are you going to send your kids to daycare? He was like, I did a thing where, like, you know, there's more money for daycares. And, like, that's the solution. And then he just leaves. He just, like, dodges the questions and then leaves. <laughs> so that's how he leaves. Um, okay. I okay. Just, <laughs> I just... This is the whole... The whole problem? The whole thing? It is... The... the, the ooh. Uh, <laughs> Even blaming women for all of society's mishaps? Well, and blame trying to explain away problems with things that seem easily attainable to people of a higher economic status. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm drunk, but that did make some sense, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm getting RBG episode flashbacks right now. I am wasted. I know. (laughs) I know. Listen, listen, okay. listen, 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 I'm listen. listening to you. It's, I'm hearing you. It's absolutely, it's unfair when people say to somebody who's expressing a problem, well, just do this. Because if you say just do this, it means it's easy for you. I know. But just is not easy for everybody. And like, just to have the mothers fix it. And like, there's Eartha Gibb being like, my mother gave me up when I was eight years old and I went to live with a family who abused me and then an aunt who didn't want me. Like, don't fucking tell me that, like, just, just. Again, or even if, like, your mother didn't give you up, but maybe you have a single mother or yeah. you have two parents in the house and you're, both your parents are working multiple shifts. One's a day shift, one's a night shift, one's a this, one's a that. They don't have time to double fucking check on you. Dude, that's how fiance grew up. I, I know. Mean, fiance, his mom was a nurse, his dad was an MRI technician. And they were night shift, right? Or they were back and forth. They were back and forth. So mom had the day shift, dad had the night shift. So, like... Yeah, like things were wild because they both had to work. Like okay. Wild West, Wild so West, no I, holds barred. <laughs> okay, so that's what he has to say about it. Okay, um, there are a few other speakers, some more qualified than others. So, like, there are some people that are like, "Yeah, I've been working in this city, and like, here's what worked for us." And I'm like, "Wow, that makes sense." Um, but then the first lady opens up the room to more questions. She's like, "Now is the time for the question and answer portion of this talk. This luncheon." And Eartha raises her hand and she starts to talk about the real culprit of juvenile delinquency that no one has addressed yet. She's like, we've been talking about some good things, but like, let's talk about this horrible, pointless war in Vietnam that is drafting (gasps) the youth of America. She said, these kids are angry because their parents are angry. Their hard earned taxes are being paid for are, are paying for a war that they don't understand and that is also killing their children she said you send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed no wonder these kids rebel and take pot which i love that phrase <laughs> take it take that pot she said the children of america are not rebelling for no reason they're not hippies for no reason 
we don't have what we have on Sunset Boulevard for no reason. They are rebelling against something. There are so many things burning the people of this country, particularly mothers. They feel they're going to raise sons, and I know what that's like, and you have children of your own, Mrs. Johnson. We raise children and send them to war. She said the youth of America didn't see the point of being a good guy if a good guy without a criminal record just gets sent off to Vietnam to die. Because that's another important thing to note. If you were a young man with a criminal record, you were not drafted. You were not eligible to go to Vietnam. Shit, so break the law. Exactly. The room goes silent. She then realizes, and she was just talking. Like, she wasn't angry. She didn't raise her voice. She was just like, hey, I know that, like, you've talked about, like, economic disparity. And, like, you've talked about this. And you've talked about that. She was like, we're not talking about the Vietnam. Root, the root of the problem. Vietnam, which is, like, a root of the problem right now. Mm-hmm. She was like, there are other aspects of this issue, but, like, we have not discussed a really big impact on it which is this senseless war that we're in the middle of so the room goes silent and she looked at mrs johnson ladybird and she apologized saying you know i hope i didn't offend you i just wanted to speak from the heart and she basically said like i do talk to these people i'm with them i work with them and i'm trying to speak for them since they would not be able to come to a fancy ladies luncheon and like these are just some of the things that i'm hearing i hear firsthand from these kids that like they don't want to go to vietnam they see their friends go off and never come back so like i just wanted to i just wanted to say that so then betty hughes this wealthy white woman stands up in a huff and she says, well, I have sons who would be glad to fight for their country if they were asked to. And any kid who takes pot just because they don't want to go to war is a kook. A kook? A kook. You mean a genius? Is that what you mean? <laughs> and her thinking is like, I mean, I, it's not the only reason we know that, but it's one of the reasons that we can't ignore. And like, no one has talked about it yet. And I just like wanted to share my opinion so lady bird kind of gets herself together i want to make this clear some people say that she burst into tears but it doesn't seem like that actually happened (laughs) and she just basically gives a very like standard political response of like well we're all just here to like try and help with things that we can change and she's like well you know in the war it's not something that like we have power over to be fair so that's true it is true like there's, there's no use talking about it because like you know even though, like like as the first lady like you do have like limited power unfortunately yeah. she's like i can't change the war i mean even so, the president can't change the war right the congress exactly thing, congress declares war so she gives this very diplomatic response the luncheon ends the ladies start to file out and everyone starts just like coming up to ladybird and just congratulating her on how well she handled that Eartha Kitt situation. And they were really proud of her because it is really difficult to deal with an angry black woman. <laughs> I just, I felt like that's where I this know, was going. I know. That's where it's going. Well, when you said like she stood up and said it very calmly, I was like, oh my God, is this pre or post the angry black woman stereotype? Cause now I'm really uncomfortable. Yeah. 
So Eartha leaves. You know, she doesn't say anything to the first lady. No one says anything to her on the way out. So she goes back to her hotel and she like meets up with um, some people from the youth program because again, she's actually doing the work. So she does that. She has dinner with a friend who drives her to the airport. And as she's like getting ready to board the plane, there's a reporter and just one reporter, you know, I think is, and he is like, I just wanted to hear about the scandal at the White House. And she was like, what scandal? She like legit didn't think that there was any issue with what happened that day. So she was like, oh, yeah, we just talked about like da 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 So she gives her story to like this one reporter, gets in the plane. And by the time she gets back to Los Angeles from D.C., there are many reporters <laughs> waiting for her at the terminal. Wow. In just a few hours, it is a national scandal. And she just didn't see the issue. She's like, yeah, I mean, I said what I needed to say. And I spoke honestly at this event that I was invited to speak at. So, And not even publicly. It was private. Yeah, it's a private event. Yes. Yeah, so Nobody like, needed I just, to know. Yeah, she's like, I just don't really understand what's going on. And then Lady Bird, of course, kind of makes things worse the next day. She has a formal White House conference like address about this oh her pride was hurt and she said the good constructive things which the speakers on the panel talked about were not heard only the shrill voice of (gasps) anger and discord and she basically says the entire event was ruined by this one again like angry black woman and it's like we could have gotten stuff done except for eartha kit and it's kind of like <laughs> but really? But what? It's like again, like I feel like she really fanned the flames. Like she could have been like, oh yeah, like everybody was talking, and like I mean, that was it. You know, her pride was hurt. She her was hosting. Eyes, yeah, she was hosting a thing, and I feel and like she got embarrassed. She got embarrassed. She was made to look bad in front of these other wealthy, you know, women, mm-hmm. and she did what she thought was right, which was wrong. Yeah, but she did what she thought was right. Yeah. And then the media storm just kept getting bigger and bigger and everyone wants to tell their version of what happened, which actually led to a lot of disinformation, which is why I focused on Beyond Reproach's cover of this. And they actually go into much more detail of like what other people said at this event. Cool. And like, so if you really want a detailed explanation of what happened, like definitely go there. If you want some fake Um, news. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And this turns into an unfortunate example of the media using something that really like wasn't a big deal and they turned it into an epic cat fight between two powerful women which again is made worse by the racist angle of the angry black woman trope you know and it's like oh this like mean black woman made this poor fragile white woman cry and it's like she didn't even cry like everything was fine and after this debacle there was kind of a fallout like Eartha Kitt stopped getting booked at certain nightclubs. She started to have a few cancellations. Um, She wasn't asked to as many events. But according to Eartha, she was like, oh, I just thought I wasn't as popular anymore because I was getting older. She was like, I was 40 years old. Like, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Yeah. She was like, I just thought that, like, yeah, I was an older woman. And, like, that's what happens to older women in Hollywood. So she moved back to Europe because she was always more popular there anyways. And, like, they don't seem to care as much about, like, age. So she moves over there. 
And people take this as like the CIA pushed her out. Dissing, dissing Eartha because she's yeah. got a, a feud with Lady Bird. Exactly. Because a lot of people say that Lady Bird and the CIA blacklisted her and ruined her career. Come on. Because the CIA had this ominous file about her. But this file had existed since the 50s because she was an influential black woman. Like, and they had, they were like, that's dangerous. <laughs> so they've had a file on her for years. Is she potentially a dangerous She's woman? She's a potentially dangerous we, woman. We met one of those. <laughs> and this report was definitely compiled of a lot of lies and misrepresentations. They, you know, were like, she had sex with people in Paris. And she was like, okay. They're like, and people sure. in America. And she's like, sure. Like, they fine, said, thank you. Yeah. Fine. They said she was crude and a sadistic nymphomaniac. <laughs> Just like all sorts of crazy things. Ugh, it's the Santa Baby song. It all comes all back. It comes back to Santa Baby. And when Eartha found out about this report, she just said, I don't understand what this is about. And I think it's disgusting. <laughs> And this thing, the whole situation definitely had an effect on Eartha's career in the U.S., but on the whole, she seemed pretty unbothered by it. Good for she, her. I know. She once said that she didn't like wasting energy on hatred and anger. Oh, you would have been dead and gone. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I would not have survived this. Um, <laughs> but again, because she like was just like, yeah, I went and spoke at this thing that I was asked to speak at, and like I didn't really see the problem. Like she literally didn't know that people thought the CIA ruined her career until like years later. <laughs> so she spent the next decade or so turning around Europe and Asia and starring in performances in London's West End theater. So she's like doing just fine. <laughs> um, she finally did return to the U.S. in 1974 to perform at Carnegie Hall, but she really made her big return in 1978. She returned to Broadway in a production of Timbuktu, playing, frankly, kind of a small, like, role. Mm. But when she went out on stage, the crowd erupted and gave her a standing ovation before she even started singing. Oh, like, people fucking missed her. <laughs> like, where have you been? <laughs> Get that standing O immediately. Exactly. Um, she received a Tony nomination for this performance. In 1984, she returned to the music charts with a disco song titled Where's My Man, the first certified gold record of her career. Uh, it reached top 40 on the UK singles chart where it peaked at number 36. Mm. And there's also like a time period in here where she, like when she comes back to the US, like I, like she gets invited back to the White House, which is kind of a big deal. Like this is where the documentary on her kind of starts. In 84? Um, I, yeah, I, no, seven, it's in the seventies. Okay. I was going to so say Reagan, really? No, it is when Reagan, oh, it is, it is Reagan. yes, okay. when Reagan gets in the office. So, um, so I think she was like kind of back and then she gets invited to the white house oh, and she gets invited to perform and it's a really big deal because it was kind of this, like, we are here for you again. Yeah. And she's like, like okay, well, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we're sorry. Um, that things got so out of hand and we love you i guess i don't really <laughs> can, can you live on our continent again please? yeah exactly there wasn't really much on this but it was the whole start to the documentary um all by myself 
that, mm. you know, I watched. Um, so anyways, so then the nineties and two thousands really brought her film career back to life. Okay. In 1992, she was in a movie called boomerang with Eddie Murphy, Chris rock, Martin Lawrence, and Halle Berry. That role should have gone to me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I love it because she's playing this like older woman who's like hitting on Eddie. Great. (laughs) She's like a love interest in the film. And she's so great. And of course she's growling all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) She loves it. Uh, in 1996, she played this incredible, crazy, wealthy lady with pink hair in Harriet the Spy. Yep. Yes. Remember with the yep. crazy house? Yep. Yeah. In 1998, she voiced Bagheera in the live action direct to video Disney film, The Jungle Book Mowgli Story, which I absolutely had the VHS of. Also, you know who's in that? Fucking Cersei from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Do you know that she thinks she gets hated constantly, like in public? No. The same way that, like, Dolores Umbridge does. Imelda Imelda Staunt. All right, everybody, get the fuck over it. They're fictional characters. It is a tribute to great acting. That's true. When people cry at you in public (laughs) because you were so good at your role that they're like, fuck you, bitch. Yep, absolutely. Now, no one ever (laughs) say that to me um, unless I deserve it. And then go ahead. <laughs> in 2000, she was cast as the villain Yzma in The Emperor's New Groove. I know. <laughs> I smash it with a hammer! I <laughs> love her. This She's, I'll turn it into mean, a fly and I will mail that fly to myself. <laughs> let's be clear. It is not David Spade who runs that film. It is Eartha Kitt. <laughs> it is absurd. <laughs> how good she is in that film and just how good that movie is like casey and i watched it like a like i think like last christmas yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> and it's yeah. really fucking good <laughs> yeah um and then she reprised the role in the disney channel series the emperor's new school which earned her two emmy awards but what about when she's the cat in emperor's new groove and she has to talk with the squeaky I voice love it. <laughs> and it's like she went full cat from she cat really woman did. to she really did <laughs> ran the cat, cat gamut <laughs> um <laughs> oh eartha kit you are a hero and then of course in 2003 she played madame zaroni in the <laughs> disney film holes uh-huh. her later years were zaroni, filled zaroni the woodpecker <laughs> <laughs> listen i can i can absolutely quote all of these you movies. love that movie <laughs> Holes it's is, a really good movie. It's my number one. It's my number one movie of all time. God, it's so good. Um, Casey and I also watched that on Christmas one year. Well, no. Um, okay. To be fair, it's not my number one movie of all time. Did I, I Have I said this on the podcast? I don't know. Okay. What's your, so what's your number one movie? Wizard of Oz, but because it has to be. Oh, well, yeah. But so my best friend and I text each other a question every day to get to know each other better. And she asked if you could only have one movie to watch for the rest of your life and you could never replace it, what movie mm-hmm. would you pick? And I was like, holes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely holes. It's so good. It has three storylines with oh like different eras in history. It's got race problems. It's got poverty problems. It's got prison problems. It's also so good. No cussing. That rap at the end that Shia LaBeouf is a part of is ridiculous. And I love it. It's insane. Also, what a great book to movie adaptation. Best ever. The best ever. Best ever. Kissing Kate Barlow is wonderful. Uh, wonderful. Sam. Um, I can fix that. Um, uh, 
Crying. Arquette. Crying. Okay, so now you all know that Holes is the best now movie. you know. <laughs> if you ever have the choice to pick one movie for the rest of your life. It should be Holes. It should be Holes. Except Shia LaBeouf's <laughs> a little crazy now, but that's fine. Yeah, he's a little problematic now, but what is zero this? is forever. <laughs> zero. Ugh. Okay, so her later years. It says, dig. <laughs> <laughs> I hate myself. Go. So her later years were filled with her just doing what she loved, which was, you know, working not only on movies and TV shows and Broadway, but she was still just teaching kids how to dance through her foundation. Like, there are just these incredible videos, like I said earlier, of her just, like, with these girls. And, like, one starts crying, and she just, like, cradles her. And she's like, don't be upset. She's like, you just need to get steps right. And she's like, just, like, and not, like, in a it's mean like the way. It's like dance moms. But That's great. Yeah, just, like, being like, no, you're great. She's like, like, I want you to be the best you can be. And it's, like, just perfect. And I love her. Eartha. Um, she queen. I know. She also became a really outspoken supporter of LGBTQ rights. She said, I support gay marriage because we're asking for the same thing. If I have a partner and something happens to me, I want that partner to really enjoy the benefits of what we have reaped together. It's a civil rights thing, isn't it? We're all rejected people. We know what it's like to be refused. We know what it is to be oppressed, depressed, and then accused. And I am very much cognizant of that feeling. Nothing in the world is more painful than rejection. I'm a rejected, oppressed person, and so I understand them as best I can, even though I am a heterosexual. In 2006, though, she was diagnosed with colon cancer. No! Cancer's such a bitch! Especially colon cancer. Like, we have friends that have survived it, and it is, like... It's terrible. It's really horrible. Oh, you can get so many infections too I after know. surgeries because just like your innards are turned inside out. <sighs> Ugh. But terrible. she just continued working through it, saying she wanted to work until her dying day. Two years later, on Christmas Day 2008, she passed away in her home with her daughter, the love of her life, Kit-Kat. by her side. Sweet Kit On Christmas Day, too. I she was know. probably listening to her song on the radio. <gasps> Oh, Eartha. She was three weeks away from her 82nd birthday. But she has left us such a legacy of what it's like to be a mixed race woman, a woman of color, just existing and thriving in every industry possible (laughs) when all the odds were against her. What a hero. I know. And uh, we just, we love her for it. And that's the story of Eartha Kitt. <laughs> well, damn. How great. I know. What a good story. I just, she's Ugh. been relevant for so many decades. So many That it decades. doesn't make sense. Like, the work that she put out early in her career and at the end of her career are equally famous, I think. It is really wild how, like, I feel like I was really shocked that they're, like, her, her Wikipedia page is very short. Charles! <laughs> Vincent, get on it. <laughs> he, uh, Charles did tell us that he does look like the guy from Biographing. On Twitter. He told us. Did he really? Yeah, he said it. He said, oh I guess gosh. I do kind of look like that guy. <laughs> so, anyways, we need to talk about these two ladies in a little segment we like to call 
Just the two of us. Okay. Wow. Where do you want to start? Because there's so many things, but I'm I feel I'm feeling scatterbrained. I know. I'm feeling scatterbrained too because we're especially drunk tonight. So number one, I want to talk about their early years. Okay. Because I feel like they both had kind of tumultuous childhoods, but in very different ways. Yeah, it's like so. Madeline's childhood was tumultuous, but not of the doing of the people around her. It was the outer society. And it seems like Eartha Kitt's immediate relations were like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Well, yeah, it's the whole difference between the personal and the political and how they both have the same effects on children. It's like feeling unhomed, feeling like you don't belong, like you can't separate the personal and the political because large political ramifications like Nazi takeovers of Czechoslovakia have effects on children, just like, you know, a young mother who was sexually assaulted and has this child and then has to give her up. Like those are seem very distant, but it all has this root in being like, my childhood was disrupted by things that are out of my control. But also like the honor of knowing your ancestry is really interesting because oh, Eartha yeah. Kitt, her father wanted nothing to do with her to not be on the birth certificate. And it is solely because she was had with a black woman. Yeah. And Madeline doesn't know her ancestry, but she could pass. She could pass for white Southern European without having to connect with her Jewish roots, which were a problem in Central Europe when she was born. And her parents took advantage of that. And like, no shade on them. They did what they could to say, hey, you don't have to be this in history. Yeah. But that's also a shock to find out when you're like 40 years old or 50 years old and about to be... Uh, a high-ranking official that you are actually a um, person that has been discriminated against for thousands of years. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I thought that that was a really interesting connection point between the two of them, that there was this false belief about their early years. Mm. I didn't go into this too much because I wasn't sure of the exact story, but Eartha Kitt didn't, like, she was always searching for, like, who her actual father was, it seemed like. And mm. when she was in her 70s, she finally got to track down her birth certificate. She realized that she was born on a different day than she thought. And, like, she was like, okay, I now know my birthday. And I now am going to finally know who my father is. And it was blacked out. Like, literally stricken from the record. Because... Whoever, the state, the city, whatever, the government was protecting was deemed more important than her. Right. And the fact of the matter is they are protecting someone. Someone, again, who is in a position of wealth and power and privilege. And this person who is like, no matter how, like, like it would be so fucking dope to be Eartha Kitt's father. Yeah. And, like, they're like, no that's still a child that like I don't respect and I don't associate with. And I find it weird too, that like Eartha Kitt was about 10 years old when Madeline Albright was born. Yeah. So seeing them on the same timeline is hard for me just because Mm -hmm. they, in the United States, Madeline Albright got to rise to this point of political power for speaking Mm -hmm. her mind. And we saw what happened to Eartha Kitt. Yeah. She was a, 
black woman at a fancy luncheon, and because she spoke her mind, she was turned away. Mm-hmm. They wanted her there to be a yes man. Yeah. They were like, come here, be the token black woman. I don't mm-hmm. know who else was there, but like, come be a symbol of the fact that we're inclusive, but shut your fucking mouth. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. But I do feel like that was... I feel like both of them, like neither of them were like messing around with like, they both kind of just went directly into what they wanted to do and what they were good at. Like I felt like, you know, Madeline Albright was so direct with what she, like maybe she didn't know exactly that. Like I want to be the secretary of state, but she was like, I want to be involved in political affairs and like international affairs because like that's what affected me the most when I was a child. Mm. And I feel like, I feel like Eartha was like, I want to be in like show business and dancing because it's the only option I have because she was like, that was her escape. I mean, she's this little kid growing up in Harlem and like, there were a lot of like people that she saw like, oh, show business is the way out. Even if it's not perfect, it's not. And I like, there is still a lot of prejudice in this situation, but like, it is a way out. Was it all a dream? Yeah. <laughs> Did she used to read Word Up magazine? Um, okay. I felt like there were two turning points. Okay. I felt like early on when Eartha Kitt learned piano mm-hmm. was very similar to Madeline learning. It's funny. I want to say Eartha Kitt and Madeline Albright. I, I know. <laughs> so it was similar to Madeline Albright learning French where they yeah. had this precipice or like this moment where Madeline was like, I don't want to be called Maria. I want to be called Madeline. And Eartha Kitt is like, I want to do this. Yep. And then I feel like that second turning point was when they were like, bye boy to their husbands. Absolutely. And it was just like, no, no, no. I'm done with that portion of my life mm-hmm. here I am at this new moment no absolutely and I kind of love that these two women I never associate with a man it's no. like even Hillary Clinton who was this powerhouse Clinton's of a woman not even her last name. I know <laughs> it's like there is always this remembrance of Bill in the back of your head mm-hmm. but like Madeline Albright and Eartha Kitt stand alone. Oh, yeah. And I think that there is such a power in that. It's like Shania Twain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't impress me much. <laughs> wow. Just calling out Brad Pitt like that. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> um, <laughs> I love your comb in your back I love, pocket. <laughs> I love that meme that was like. <laughs> Shania Twain like I don't care about Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt's like what did I do to you (laughs) (laughs) Um, what (laughs) so (laughs) but I I do I think that that's very rare especially because like I think that Eartha Kitt is someone who is so defined by her sexuality but we can't pin any one man to her literally like people someone like like associated with her they're like oh she's like the like black she's Marilyn. rubber and they're glue well, no 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 <laughs> they said she's like the black Marilyn monroe oh. because she's like this incredible like sensuous woman it's like santa baby yeah the very opposite of that exactly yeah. and but Marilyn monroe like you can 
associate her with certain men. Like, I just feel like the men are yeah, totally that, that one baseball player, Joe DiMaggio, and Arthur Miller, and, and the other first guy that she married. And <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like she is associated with men, mm. but I feel like Eartha Kitt and Madeline Albright stand alone, even though. You know, Madeline is openly like, yeah, I was hurt by that guy. But there's also power in accepting like, yeah, that sucked. And I was hurt by it, which probably also gives a lot of hope to other women. Be like, it's okay to still be hurt by the man that left you yeah, because it happens to people. And you want to be the type of woman to be like, yeah, we broke up or like, whatever, I'm better for it. But like, sometimes you're like, like. I was watching this episode of fucking Longmire, you know, and this girl was like, my husband cheated on me, but he, she was like, he was the love of my life. And like, I hate that. Like I am still in love with him, even though he treated me so poorly, Mm. you know? And just like hard people do experience that vulnerability. Oh, you can hate people you love for sure. Absolutely. We have to talk about war. I mean, Eartha Kitt's big scandal is saying like, we have to stop sending these people to war because they are dying and they are literally becoming delinquents because they have no reason to live. Mm -hmm. And Madeline Albright's like, if we just send our people to war, we can save so many people. Yeah. I, there's no good answer or comment. There's no, yeah, you're right. There's no good solution because like, I definitely don't think that we should have been in Vietnam. I like, I mean, I agree. It's just so hard because like the military has such a good purpose there. Right. It's I'm like, not knowledgeable enough to speak on it is why I'm being so cautious. Like I don't yeah. get it. I don't get foreign policy enough to say when is and when is not a good time to be in another country. Right. No, exactly. Because I feel like, I feel like when Vietnam happened, the U S was like, okay, if we just go in and help, then everything will be better. And well, then it was it's like, 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 it was an arm of the cold war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, what was like actually made things way worse. Yeah. And like, you're not helping uh, again. Like, I don't really know too. Like I am also not very well versed in the Vietnam war, but I do feel like there is this sentiment of, wars are bad but sometimes they lead to good things and sometimes they lead to terrible things yeah you know? it's hard and like there is no solid answer but god i forgot where i was but we're both like i think it's interesting this. because i know it, it's hard because the way that sometimes katie and i are both very left-leaning and i think that sometimes a, a lot of people think that like more left-leaning people have zero you know, respect or need for the police in the way it is or zero respect and need for the military the Mm -hmm. way it is. And I don't, I don't think that that's true of people on the left. I think that they're more cautious Mm -hmm. about the way it is. And, you know, your grandfather was in a police officer, like a Mm -hmm. great one for his entire career. And we have family members in the military and one of our favorite listeners, Miss Krista, her daughter is in the Marines. Like they're so much tied into the national security that it's so hard to understand. And I'm just not at the level to get it. Right. No, exactly. And you know, when they were abusing it was when again, like we were in Vietnam and then we're 
blacklisting this singer who she was just a black woman of influence and they're like wow she has way too much influence like let's let's put the stop on her because she was also like it's interesting because she was talking in one interview about how she was actually trying to get malcolm x on mlk's side Mm. and she was like you know i was trying to like really like bridge the gap and be like you know you should really consider like this more peaceful movement and da, 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 da. and she was like and i had black panthers like press up on me and be like you should get on our side or like you should go away you know and she was like so i have like the u.s mad at me i have the black panthers mad at me but the u.s is mad at me because they think i'm a black panther and like it's like this whole complicated situation. time to go to europe yeah exactly <laughs> she's like ah I'm going to pull Josephine Baker and just go to Europe. (laughs) I loved the end of their careers. Well, I just feel like they kept their spirits up in their old age. It became more fun. Oh, they totally did. Wreck? Mm -hmm. Holes? Absolutely. (laughs) Like, this is fun. Those are fun things. And I felt like they kept themselves relevant and present for their later years to give young women a boost. Like, you said that, like, her roles in... Gilmore Girls and Parks and Rec were to like give like these young like protégés like you can do it you know and I feel like Eartha did that in not only just existing as an older sexy public woman but also like she's doing it behind the scenes too like she had a whole dance company company based on teaching young girls their worth and value through Mm -hmm. dance and i just i love that they both stayed present and relevant in any way that they could like and nothing was above like nothing was oh i'm eartha kit i don't do disney movies like hell yeah you do it's like yeah of course i'll do that and like you know madeline albright is like I'm Madeline Albright. I don't do sitcoms. Sitcoms. You know? Except for when you have Louis C.K. being like, who's that, your mom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> Leslie Knope's like, Madeline Albright? Oh, my gosh. I forgot about this. That's that so funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, that started back in early, early seasons. Woo! Okay. Are All you right. ready to toast? I am ready to toast because I... So drunk. I'm very yeah. I'm hey, toast. but we're better at pronouncing words now. I hope by so. season My seven than that. The, the final episode of season one was a tragedy. Trash. Yeah. Uh, who should I toast this okay. evening? I want to toast the just the revenge of a lifetime. Mm. I know that everyone reacts to pain differently, but my, oh my, some people dust off the ashes and rise from the fire as a new and improved human. And it seems like Madeline did that. I, I just want to cheers people who breed power from extreme pain. I know that it's probably not healthy and it's a distraction from the work you should be doing on yourself, but I see you and your zero chill and I love it. There we go. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> what do you got? I'm going to toast sexy older women. Ah, I just love that Eartha Kit is kicking up her legs and growling and being a sex symbol for the ages. Good. I, I don't know. I just, I love that she was so unbothered. It, she, like she appeared so unbothered by like what people or society thought of her. She was like, I'm Eartha Kitt, the same as I was in 1941, the same as I am today. And Perfect. I just, I love it. 
So cheers to sexy older women. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right, Allie. Who or what or when would you like to promote in pop culture this week? I just am like, <laughs> as per the usual, I'm so proud of Banksy. <laughs> what? Okay, so. As per usual, I don't know this. <laughs> I, I I think I may have promoted other Banksy things before in the past. Okay. But I am just fascinated by someone who does not care if anybody knows who they are at all. And, yeah. and henceforth has become famous or like one of his famous things was that painting that he sold oh, and then it goes shredded. through the shredder. Yep. But anyway, this week, the reason I'm bringing it up is this week he sold a painting for multi millions of dollars and it is a little boy um, pencil drawing like Banksy typically does on the floor. And there is like a laundry basket of toys and there's like a Batman-esque thing out of the edge and there was like a Spider-Man thing falling out. And this little boy above his head is holding a nurse with a oh. cape. And you know how he usually has one red thing. Yeah. And it's like the red cross like yeah. on her and it's like the cape. And it sold for millions and millions of dollars because obviously it's symbolizing the yeah. work from 2020. All of the money is being donated to like health organizations. Like I love that. Fuck you, dude. You're too cool. <laughs> I who are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure we all know. It's Chris Jenner. Is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That would be so funny. Oh what a turnaround. Oh my God. Around. The wife of the prosecutor of the OJ Simpson case. <laughs> that Chris Jenner. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Totally not. Obviously. I know. I know. Um, yeah. I just thought it was really, I thought it was a really sweet sentiment and yeah. it's like, usually he doesn't like go he or she, but probably he does not lean into pop culture. Yeah. So it's, That's um, awesome. I don't know. It was a really cute picture. So, All right. I'll look it up. Yeah. What do you got? Um, I'm going to go basic. I'm going to recommend holes <laughs> like we didn't already in honor of Madame Zeroni and both the book and the movie. God, the book is so good. And the movie is so perfect. Unbelievable. And I, Unbelievable. Yeah, just watch it, read it, you know, listen to it, do whatever you have to do. It's really fucking good. I, know, I mean, not only do you get Eartha Kitt, but, I mean, <laughs> Henry Winkler's in it. What more could you want? Sigourney Weaver. Oh, my God. I mean, literal alien is in the movie. Oh. She's a masterpiece. She's a masterpiece. Also, oh, my gosh. Who is it? Do you hear the empty spaces? <laughs> when she shakes that jug and is so angry that <laughs> Mr. Sir did not fill it oh back up. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so great. So, yeah, just go watch, read, or listen to Holes. It's really fucking good. Um, all right. I so cannot remember what the mom says once the onion falls in the water at the end, and it's killing me. That's fine. <laughs> I wanted to super cut all yeah. the good women lines in the mm. movie, but I'm not there. Mm, okay. okay, fine. Sorry. All right. Find us everywhere. Find us everywhere. If We're you all are the places. so inclined. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all sorts of places. But where we really want you to find us is on our reviews and ratings, because that's how we get 
to know people. We love the private messages. They're super, uh, super, super sweet. But if best. you could copy and paste that <laughs> <laughs> onto um, a review, because listen, um, we you found us. But it's not fair that other people can't find us. It's so true. So let other people find us. I have sometimes people will be like, I, I, on Twitter, just this past week, somebody was like, I just found your page. and I'm curious as to why I haven't been following you for years. <laughs> and I was like, because I'm not big enough for anyone to care. Yeah. That's the so, reason. So sorry. So yeah. So get at us. Share the good news. The good word of the her gospel, the rocks. as one might say. <gasps> um, <laughs> Go telling on a mountain. That her story exactly. everywhere. That's it the same one madame zaroni was wanting to go up on and, um Looks god's like green thumb, thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so hang out with us we love you we also have a patreon if you like the show and want us to keep doing it join our patreon and you it's can get free things. gifts uh i have some temporary tattoos ah, coming we're so excited designed by the amazing mora also a patron also a patron she's also, gonna get a tattoo of her own art also a lovely lovely human Aww. so yeah join us everywhere we love you and we hope you're doing well mm. but we want you most of all to never ever forget that well-behaved woman regularly remind you that breakfast is the most important meal of the oh, day. They do, and I rarely ever eat it. <laughs> and, and they rarely make history. This is true. They don't make history ever. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>